And hello, everybody. Welcome to a narrative on a Tuesday evening. So good to be with you tonight. And we've got an exciting show tonight. Uh, hello to Dave Troy. Nice to see you, Dave. How are you? Thanks for being here. I'm doing well. It's great to be back here with you, Zev, and the rest of our guests. It's so nice to have you here. And Aaron Harris, who many of you know is clearing underscore fog. How are you, Aaron? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for being here. And uh, Joe Dempsey's back. James Dempsey, too, who's with us tonight as well. How are you, Joe? Good, Jeff. Thanks for having me. So excited about tonight because we really wanted to talk about what happened last week, which was, you know, we had an interview with Everett Stern, who is a senator uh, candidate for the GOP in Philadelphia, who came out swinging with some real allegations against Michael Flynn, uh, saying that he and his cohorts have been extorting local officials, attempting to use blackmail and a bunch of other things to try and get them to support the audit. It was pretty stunning to have that kind of first-person allegation on our air, so I wanted to get the trust of brains that we have on Twitter to discuss this a little bit and figure out what we learned from that. From that, we have all the new subpoenas that came out from the January 6th committee, so we want to discuss that. And when you look at all of the totality, it really is beginning to give us a different view of what January 6th was all about. I mean, we all know what happened on the day, we all saw it in real time. But it seems that the campaign to get it done, the campaign to organize all these people, the militias, the political undertaking, and now it seems even maybe some of the dirty tricks that went on in order to coerce people to get involved in January 6 is much greater than just that day and certainly much greater than has previously been reported. So that's what we're going to talk about in general today. But I wanted to first get your thoughts, Dave, if we could start with you, about the new wave of subpoenas that came out. We had uh, six last night, another 10 today. We'll go through all the names in detail in just a bit. But generally, what do you think is going on with the committee's requests for these uh, documents and this evidence? Sure. So I think that, you know, it's pretty good indication that they're getting to the right people and are starting to get good information about who uh, is responsible for this, who has more information and, you know, generally what direction to take the investigation. And so I'm pretty encouraged to see the people that they've pulled in. You know, yesterday they announced that they were bringing in Michael Flynn, who, you know, many of us who have been studying this believe him to be very much at the center of a lot of this activity. And then also uh, Bernie Carrick, who is apparently responsible for coordinating a lot of the logistics of the kind of war rooms and hotel accommodations and whatnot that these guys were using during the January 6th event. And of course, he's an old, you know, tight friend with Rudy Giuliani and all of that. So um, it was good to see that. And then today, uh, you know, Stephen Miller and, um, you know, a variety of other folks including uh, Kaylee McEnany, uh, former press secretary, and John McEntee was another big presidential advisor who was sort of his body man prior to becoming a, you know, a more active advisor. So they're getting to the right people. Now, you know, there's been some discussion as to whether or not these subpoenas are going to be enforced and what the consequences will be for not, you know, showing up and whether these people are going to be cooperative or not. And I think those are valid questions, but I also think we want to not jump to conclusions about how this is going to play out. If we see that there's a pattern of failure to comply with these subpoenas and to be cooperative, that's indicative of a criminal conspiracy. And that's the sort of thing mm -hmm. that popular pressure can help to put more sunlight onto this so that we really do get to the bottom of it. But I would also caution that this kind of a committee, I mean, it's not a law enforcement exercise. It's a political committee designed to elicit a certain kind of political uh, analysis and outcome. And it's also on a bit of a tight schedule, too. It needs to kind of do that sometime next year prior to the midterms uh, functionally. So right. I think those are kind of the factors that are at play. But it's great to see the progress that they're making. They have made some good progress. Let's begin, if we don't mind looking at a little bit in detail here before uh, the others jump in. 
So there's, uh, I think, particularly interesting to me was Keith Kellogg, who's the uh, National Security Advisor to VP Pence. Like he was amongst the subpoenas handed out today. And it's, it is interesting here that he was at the White House with former President Trump on January the 6th as the attack on the U.S. Capitol unfolded. And he has direct information, according to the committee, about the former president's statements about and reactions to the Capitol insurrection. According to several accounts during the day, Kellogg met uh, Mr. Trump and others before the rally at the Ellipse and then after the rally, reportedly urged Mr. Trump to send out a tweet to supporters at the U.S. Capitol to help control the crowd. Now, of course, Trump didn't do this. There were many, many requests on that day. He ultimately did put out some sort of tweets, but it certainly wasn't as quickly or as directly as many of the people around him were asking. It seems to me that's what a lot of the today's subpoenas were about. It seems to be about making sure that people understand that there were many people around Donald Trump saying, do something, and that he chose not to do what they were asking. In fact, kept watching TV and encouraging the event. Uh, Aaron, what do you think of all of that? I agree. I also uh, agree with Dave's point that it's important to distinguish the difference between a criminal investigation and a public investigation like this, a political investigation. I refer to it more as public, but, you know, criminal investigations are very narrow and limited in scope, you know, the right. way that they fact find. They only look for information and only report out information that pertains specifically to criminal activities and activities that fall under criminal statutes. And so criminal investigations like that don't ever actually paint a full story. They don't tell a full story or paint a full picture uh, about, especially with an event as large as this and as complex as this, it's really important to do both, right? I mean, obviously we need criminal accountability um, where crimes were committed, but we also need to see the entire story and kind of paint a picture of what happened that day from beginning to end. Even going back previous to January 6th and going back and investigating all the conversations that were had much before. In fact, one of the committee's subpoenas uh, goes back as early as April 2020. Mm. So I was also interested today in the subpoena of Ben Williamson and Christopher Liddell, because as uh, Zach Cohen with CNN, uh, shared a story earlier today. And, you know, I, I wasn't really familiar with those two people. They yeah, really those are new names to me. I don't really know right. very much about them, but I did look a little into them today. What did they say on CNN that was interesting to you? What was interesting is that uh, they are both uh, really close to Mark Meadows. Mm -hmm. And as we know, you know, the committee subpoenaed Mark Meadows some time ago, and he hasn't exactly been forthcoming. And uh, the reporting is that uh, they're getting a little frustrated with, uh, <laughs> with Mark Meadows' uh, cooperation so far. And so it's really interesting. It almost seems like uh, this is kind of a strategy to get to the information they were hoping to get from Meadows in a different, a different yeah, way. Yeah, it, it does seem to me that's in fact exactly what they were trying to do. Looking at the letters that they sent out to these you know, relatively unknown people, it seems that in one case they want to know, you know why Meadows didn't react to a call from the uh, press department there to do something to condemn the violence. That's why they want to talk to Ben Williamson. And they also want to talk to uh, Chris Liddell, much for the same kind of reasons. They want to know what Meadows did in the weeks leading up to the insurrection. So you're absolutely right that that's one of the things that they're trying to do there is trying to get some more information about that. They're also trying to get information about Mike Pence. Not in much so much questioning Mike Pence, but looking at the pressure campaign that Donald Trump and others had to try and convince Mike Pence to do, you know, the, the seemingly illegal, um, which would have been to overturn the election results. Joe, do you have any thoughts about how that is all developing? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, Pence is an anomaly for me in some ways because he's still sort of backing Trump, still kind of in the, on the team. But there's some things that are coming out. I don't know if you saw, I think it was Mueller she wrote. Uh, had an exclusive, I believe, today 
uh, talking about how the badges on the security detail and for Mike Pence just didn't work on January 6th mm-hmm. at some point during the day. I didn't know that. That's I interesting. It is interesting because as they're trying to, you know, save Pence or, you know, make him safe, I think one of the other things is there's a story about how Pence was supposed to get into a vehicle and he said, I'm not getting into that vehicle. So one of the things that he sort of did to help kind of save the day, if you will, was stay at the Capitol, which, you know, you kind of have to look at and say that's above all of this in a way. Um, in the sense that if he had left, they didn't have to do anything to harm him. All they had to do was keep him away from the Capitol and keep him away from certifying the election. Mm-hmm. And the more time that went on in terms of, you know, just that length of time that Pence was unavailable to do the certification, who knows what could have happened in, in that, you know, what they could have done to sort of, quote unquote, keep Pence safe. Uh, they could have called in troops or they could have done, you know, any number of things. Um, but that Darren's point about Mark Meadows, I feel in a way that he's sort of the fulcrum in a lot of this. There was a report, I believe, in the Washington Post recently. They did a three-part series called Before, During, and After. Mm-hmm. And they went about 120 or so days prior to the election and started talking about what was what was going on. And then they would bring it down. They'd say like, like 63 days before the inauguration, you know, those kind of things. And then they did during and then they did after. One of the things that was interesting was Mark Meadows going back and forth between, you know, trying to get Trump to put out a message and what to say and bringing even an Ivanka in to try to get her father to stop what was going on. And Meadows, it was told, was sort of speaking out of both sides of his mouth in mm. terms of being a guest man to Trump, but then also kind of going to Ivanka and saying, he's got to stop this. You know, you got to get in front of this. It's interesting, uh, just to go to circle back a little bit with Pence there, that I had heard as well that they couldn't get into the safe room because they didn't have the safe keys for the safe room uh, for Pence at the Capitol. Is, is that along the signs of what Allison is reporting? That's really interesting. That, yeah, I think uh, that's what the badge is not working okay. about. So that's not a new story, but she probably has new details on that. You know, the other interesting name that comes up, and it's impossible to ignore this guy because he's so loathsome, is mm. Stephen Miller. I mean... There is no nastier person in the entire administration. It's really easy to dislike the guy. And here he is involved in everything going around January 6th. According to the committee, he says, and this is a pretty long here, but I'll just uh, cut it down to the important stuff, that the select committee's investigation and public accounts have revealed credible evidence of your involvement in the events within the scope of the committee's inquiry. Based on our public statements, you were aware and participated in efforts to spread false information about alleged voter fraud on the uh, November 2020 election, as well as efforts to encourage state legislatures to alter the outcome of November 2020 by, among other things, appointing alternate state of electors and sent competing electoral votes to the United States Congress. So, and then it also talks about him helping to write this speech for the Stop the Steal rally, and he was also with Mr. Trump that whole day. Now, this guy, Stephen Miller, seems to be a constant, I don't know how you would describe him, just a constant irritant in the, in the Trump White House. Dave, this new information is not particularly new, but the fact that he's got such a big role to play with, with all of this is, is not surprising, but it is nevertheless disturbing because of the kind of person he is. Yeah, I mean, I think that there were sort of an original batch of very incendiary people that were brought into the mix in the early days of the administration, and he was certainly one of them, and somebody that I think kind of trained at the right hand of Bannon in terms of being able to find divisive issues, package language around those issues, and get people really divided and and wound up around certain issues. You know, that was kind of, I believe he was a Duke alumni and, uh, you know, was stirring up a lot of stuff there and then worked for Jeff Sessions some. So, you know, he's a, he's a talented provocateur. And I think that that's kind of what's at the core of a lot of this is the desire to um, provoke people and to create divisions. And in that divisions really 
sow chaos that can then be bent into different outcomes. And I think that that's what we, a lot of what the purpose of January 6th was, was to generate enough chaos that multiple outcomes were possible. It seems to me that the one thing that we haven't paid as much attention to, and this is really what I want to focus on in tonight's show, is this this attempt to convince local state officials around the country to change their votes and thinking around the slate of electors that they were sending and convincing the GOP on a federal level to back this idea that we needed to audit all the elections or rerun the elections, which is really an idea that came from Michael Flynn, but is a, you know, is the core thing that led up to January the 6th. I mean, January the 6th was a terrible event on its own, but there was a huge campaign. And it seems that Stephen Miller was among the people involved in doing that. We we certainly know Mark Meadows was involved in doing that because we also have that phone call uh, with Donald Trump and the uh, election officials out of Georgia. But the more I look at this, the more I think that, you know, we haven't really investigated enough of what Mike Flynn and his cohorts have been doing. It might be instructive to, to talk a little bit first about Flynn's own subpoena here, which came out of the committee last night. So it says here the select committee and other public accounts have revealed credible evidence of your involvement in the events within the scope of the committee's inquiry. You reportedly attended a December 18, 2020 meeting in the Oval Office, during which participants discussed seizing voting machines, declaring national emergency and invoking certain national security emergency powers, and continuing to spread the message of the November 2020 elections had been tainted by widespread fraud. You know, and he's did a lot of the stuff in Newsmax and elsewhere, but I'm really interested in your thoughts, Aaron, here on his involvement in the weeks leading up to all of this in sort of fomenting this idea that the elections were full of fraud and deserve to be overturned by uh, the state electors, or at least the state legislatures. I think a really important point that I think we're going to learn a lot more about personally, because, you know, in addition, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned the seizing voting machines initiative that uh, he was going for, because he wasn't only doing that on his own and working with his own close associates to do that. In fact, we learned a couple of months ago that he was also reaching out to some constitutional sheriffs, the Constitutional Sheriff's Peace Officers Association, um, specifically Sheriff Darleaf of Michigan, you know, the, <laughs> the guy who was seen on stage with some of uh, the, the Whitmer kidnapping plot associates, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Darleaf actually attempted to reach out to other constitutional sheriffs and recruit them to help him seize voting machines. And the information that he was using to do that is the same information that Trump was passing out in DOJ to try to get DOJ mm-hmm. you know, used to overturn the elections as well. And so it's really interesting that we've got sort of this multi-pronged, uh, multifaceted approach going on here between, you know, I, at a certain point, I, I started agreeing with uh, folks who referred to it as irregular warfare because, you know, they were essentially waging attack through a legal system, through uh, the political process. When all that failed, they went to more kinetic approaches, essentially. But you can kind of see all this building up on, on the lead up to January 6th, right? all the way up until the infamous Georgia call, right? Mm-hmm. And Flynn, uh, interestingly, has some, and maybe we could save this for when we <laughs> talk about Mr. Stern, but uh, he interestingly has some folks around him that there are some indications might have been involved with all of those aspects, um, and potentially even before um, some of Trump's folks were. So it's, yeah, it's, very it's It certainly seems that's the case. I mean, you sort of have, a, you know, we certainly are aware of what is happening now for January 6th in terms of, you know, getting the event done. We know that there were political movements going on behind the scenes in terms of convincing federal and state officials to vote against the election outcomes. But there's more. It seems like this group of people that uh, 
Everett Stern identified were around Mike Flynn appeared to be a group of individuals belonging to one particular party. He's called them the Patriot Caucus, but you know who knows if that's the umbrella they're really operating up. But let's take that as as the name, Patriot Caucus. <laughs> if that's the case, you've got a group of people there who are not only involved in funding operations to try and convince state officials to overturn the vote, but maybe even using some dirty tricks. I mean, Stern's allegations last week, he didn't go into them in detail, but seemed to indicate that there were, you know, even considerations of doing things like domestic terror acts, didn't elaborate, but against certain representatives in the House of Representatives. I mean, they're quite serious at the allegations, although he did not go into them in detail. Certainly, that's the indication. And so you look at this group of people around Flynn that Stern identified here, Dave, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are, because it seems like a, a black op kind of thing. It looks like an operation with sinister motives and with sinister actions of trying to undermine democracy in a much more sinister way than has previously been described. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the first thing to kind of say is that the uh, information that Mr. Stern has provided has in general seemed to be correct. Uh, you know, the claims that he's made seem to check out in terms of times, dates, places, people. Uh, names, relationships, you know, names of organizations and whatnot. There's evidence of everything that he said existing online. Now, I think that there are definitely open questions that people have about what his motives are and uh, whether or not he may still be in some way working for this organization or maybe otherwise trying to protect himself. And I, I declined to speculate on that, basically, that we can't really judge that right now because we don't have enough information. But what we can do is simply judge the information that he's provided and see if it has utility. So towards that end, he's provided the names of this Velma Ann Ruth, Mark Still, Al Hartman, this real estate guy, and of course, Ivan Raiklin, who's, you know, Flynn's longtime attorney and, uh, you know, ops guy, and also this Rick Saccone, or Saccone. You know, all of these folks appear to be involved in various aspects of uh, Pennsylvania politics. There's a group called the London Center for Policy and Research that, uh, you know, some of these folks seem to be connected to. So Velma Ann Ruth is connected to a guy named Brigadier General Ernie Arduino. And he's, you know, got a background in like Kurdistan and Iraq, and they've got all seem to have connections into uh, Egypt and dealing with the Middle East. And so there's a lot of pro-Israel sentiment, very anti-Islamic sentiment. And, you know, I mean, some of that, they come by honestly from, you know, U.S. foreign policy. It's not like that's a, a totally aberrant uh, set of beliefs. But at the same time, it gives you a sense of what network that they're hooked into. And um, there's another group called the Gold Institute run by a guy named Eli Gold that's connected in with this network of folks with Arduino. And, uh, you know, so it, it's kind of just more pointers into the usual suspect network. And I think that this just you know, underscores the need for gaining more information so that more could be understood about their activities. I will say also that, you know, when we talk about the constitutional sheriff's movement, that whole situation is not limited to January 6th. Mm. This is something that's been going on for some time and is, you know, really the basis for the gripe that the Council for National Policy type people have with the federal government. And their basic idea is that they want to do this aggregation of local and state governments to oppose the federal government. And of course, they're also pushing for the adoption of gold and silver as currency and also now crypto uh, as a way to reject the Fed coin, federal dollars, you know, the, mm. the money created by fiat and run by the Federal Reserve. So, you know, this is bigger than January 6th. And that's one of the things that I think we're starting to understand is that January 6th is actually giving us a little bit of a, a skeleton key to understanding this much larger process and network 
which is still active and, and the process is still going on. I think it's a very important point is that, you know, it didn't end on January 6th. It was maybe just another chapter, uh, January 6th, because we still see the same. It's sort of a flare up of, of, an, yeah. of a condition, if you will. Yeah. You know? Yeah. A worsening condition that we've not really dealt with. And so, you know, when people question about why people being so critical of Mary Garland not doing very much yet publicly to at least enforce some of the laws around these people, it's because of that. I mean, you sort of have a situation where we can all see that this is still ongoing. This is not something that ended on January 6th just because Biden was was installed as the president, rightly so. The sentiment continued and certainly the activity continued. And now we can see from Stern's allegations here that a lot of it is not above board. You know, potentially what Stern is saying here, if, if proven true, is that there's illegal activity going on. There's potentially blackmail, extortion, all sorts of things going on to pressure local officials to act in certain ways. And as we head into a, you know, another election cycle where some of these election officials have been installed, we have questions about whether they are legitimate as well. You know, this is not something that we can just ignore. I mean, this is an, a current existing situation we have to deal with as we head into an election cycle that's just around the corner. Um, it's, it's so current, Zev, that mm -hmm. it just happened in Virginia. So one of the other things that mm -hmm. Everett Stern had mentioned was that this wasn't just taking place in Pennsylvania, but that it was also in Oklahoma and Virginia. Mm -hmm. I think if you look, Ivan Reichland was actually uh, just in a video with Governor-elect Youngkin. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of voting that took place as a result of the CRT. You know, a mm -hmm. lot of people talking about critical race theory, not really truly understanding what it was, but knowing that it was bad, right? It wasn't something that I can describe to you, but it's something that I know I need to vote against. Right. So how did they get to that mentality that, you know, just by hearing any type of wokeness, if you will, because I know that's another term that's being bandied about at this point, uh, would be falling now into a singular category of critical race theory. And if that helped to propel Governor-elect Youngkin, you know, it's an interesting video to see him kind of go up to Ivan Reichland as a result of his election and say, hey, you're the greatest. I mean, that's it's a little yeah. weird. I mean, it certainly feels like uh, in, in Virginia, where Reichland himself was standing for office as well and was eventually not allowed to run because there's so many issues with his campaign. But he's been running a pressure campaign there too. You know, there's a lot of photos on his Instagram feed where he's, you know, going around to local officials. Uh, you know, clearly some of them have, well, not clearly, but they seem to be making comments that might be a little bit under duress where they're describing their desire for an audit and relooking at that vote in, in last year. It's very, it's very difficult to, to see that this guy's operating in good faith considering his background. Um, but before we leave this one slide, I think it's just important to get everyone's thoughts on it. And then we'll, we'll talk about Reichland and Verma in, in great details, but, I am interested, Aaron, in your thoughts about this network that Stern is identifying here, the one that has a, a real estate tycoon at the helm of it, a guy who is, you know, made a lot of money in Texas of real estate. You've got Flynn, you know, we know his history, uh, but you've also got these sort of former Marine in Reichland who's also affluent in Russian and all these other operatives that seem to be operating on the ground, which are either elected officials or soon to be uh, elected officials. It's troubling when you look at that kind of a network of sort of bad actors. It absolutely is. And, uh, you know, I, I concur with what Dave was saying uh, just before me a second ago that, uh, you know, I don't want to assess credibility or anything like that. We don't have enough information, but it is very interesting that he's surfaced a couple of folks that we haven't really spent much time digging into that um, folks weren't really aware of. And then we go look and there's some actual credible information behind that. So, you know, that's certainly a point in his favor because there's been a lot of reporting about Reichland, you know, especially from uh, a researcher on Twitter, Vision Surreal, is mm. basically he's been way ahead of the curve on this part of the story. And uh, 
a lot of what Stern is talking about, it really correlates with the contours of what we already know around the, the Reichland story, the Flynn story, some of these things, but then it adds this sort of extortion story on top of it, right? Mm-hmm. I, I hope that DOJ and some other really smart folks are you know, investigating that and vetting it out. I'm, I'm not making any judgments about him. I come from a place that is skeptical due to the last several years that we've lived through. And, you know, the way um, I think a potential analogy to describe my skepticism would be the uh, dossier and the way that it came out and layered things on top of what we already knew. But then it added these uh, really salacious claims that weren't really maybe not provable. And it actually served as a later as a way for people to discredit call the entire thing a hoax and and i'm not saying that's what this is uh, I, i'm not saying it is i'm just saying that that's part of what informs my skepticism is, is mm. those kinds of situations 100%. so yeah i think you're right about and being by, skeptical about the especially the i'm not skeptical about the allegations themselves these allegations he's made and you know the doj and others have to investigate it i don't think we can say whether they're true or not but what is interesting to me aside from the allegations of extortion and blackmail is the network which is a new network that we hadn't seen before even though we'd all been looking at this group of people we hadn't really identified the patriot caucus as a thing and we hadn't identified velma and ruth as someone you know significant to look at and reichland as you point out vision surreal has been doing some amazing work on that but it's not being front and center of our thinking around uh, all these events that led up to january 6th so Aside from the extortion allegations and the blackmail allegations, we have learned quite a lot about this network, which I'm kind of fascinated about. It's also really interesting that, you know, soon after we aired that interview, both websites, it appears to me, the Patriot Caucus one and the one that uh, Verma has, uh, which is, what's the name of this website again? Uh, her, her company's called ABS, ABS Community, Community Research. Research. Sorry, I apologize for that. So, you know, both these sites uh, went down. I don't know if they pulled them down. Other people pulled them down but all the information on it landed up being taken out. And one of the interesting things that were interesting to me of her website is that she has received an award with the United Nations affiliated organization, which also appears to be affiliated to the Moonies, which, you know, for people who've been watching this show is a bit of a red flag. So we've done so much work around the Moonies and their involvement in Jan 6. So, you know, Dave, you've, you've certainly been involved in some of that as you, I know it's a peripheral affiliation that she has, but she was given an award by this UN organization that is affiliated with the Moonies. What are your thoughts about their involvement with these people? Yeah, I mean, I think what you have to look at when you're studying these kinds of networks is the associations between them, their affiliations, their, you know, there's the principle of homophily, which is sort of the tendency of people with like-minded views to, you know, cluster together and to hang out together and whatnot. And um, I think what one thing that people sort of get wrong when they're trying to study networks like this is, you know, you, you, this isn't a criminal investigation here. We're not trying to prove that somebody is, you know, guilty by association. It's more about what are their motives? What is the network that they're hanging out with? What are the probabilities of them being sort of affiliated with a, a set of causes that uh, might explain their behavior so that we can understand what they're trying to do and what they might do next? So, for example, I'm very unlikely to get an, a certificate from an organization affiliated with the Moonies because I don't really, <laughs> you know, hang out with those kinds of people doing those kinds of things. Right. But, you know, somebody like Velma and Ruth uh, appears to have been doing that and, and appears to be, you know, aligned with networks that uh, were pulling in the same direction, as it were. So I, I think, you know, you have to be careful about how you talk about that kind of evidence, but I think it does indicate, you know, a certain uh, worldview and, and, you know, propensity towards certain kinds of activity. And I think you just sort of take it at face value as it is. Mm -hmm. Certainly interesting that same 
Mooney's organization was responsible for that big summit with Donald Trump uh, recently. Uh, you know, On 9-11, yeah, 20th anniversary, yeah. yeah. Of, all, of all dates. And if you look historically, I mean, the Moonies were deeply involved in all of the anti-communist stuff in the post-war era, and then, you know, tightly involved with the formation of the Council for National Policy and Iran-Contra. I mean, it's inextricable from the history that we're dealing with here. 100%. You mentioned another interesting connection to Egypt. And this is, you know, she has a podcast, Velma and Ruth does, and it's uh, fascinating listening to if you want to journey through the mind of someone who's who's, you know, certainly got themselves very involved in an insurrectionist movement based on a lot of falsehoods. But nevertheless, there she is in these podcasts talking about all these crazy things. And amongst other things, she, on January 25th, just a few weeks after the insurrection, she's on a very personally directed message to Donald Trump, assuming, I guess she does, that he's listening to her podcast. It says, Dear Sir, call General Al-Sisi, the Egyptian leader, and by the simple suggestion, I would assume you know exactly what I mean. Secretary Pompeo would know everything about everything. I mean, I, I don't know if she, if she has, uh, you know, if Donald Trump is a fan of her podcast or not, but it's... The connection to Al-Sisi is impossible to ignore because of his history uh, supporting the Trump campaign back in 2016, but also just in general. Boy, it's a weird name to throw into the mix uh, when you come around to January 6th. Well, and, and Donald Trump called Al-Sisi his favorite dictator right. a few years ago. Yeah. You know, And so there, there seems to be some connection between this network, this Vilma and Ruth and Audino and all those folks in installing uh, LCC in 2013. That that seems to be the implication. So, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, he's widely considered to be a dictator, strongman type, you know, much like we've seen in other parts of the world that have affiliated with Trump and his network. So I think it, it just deserves a great deal of historical scrutiny, um, as well as, you know, looking for signs of potential wrongdoing and criminal activity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in terms of recent history, if you go back, and I don't want to go back into the Wayback Machine too far, but Volume 5, there's mention of LCC and Mike Flynn as well, as it relates to the UN and even a vote uh, that right. was coming up about the Israeli settlements. So there's yeah. uh, there's an awful lot to still learn from Volume 5 that was released years ago. Absolutely. It does seem like this network has very uh, big international connections. Narrative is made possible by viewers like you. Join today and support truly independent journalism at patreon.com forward slash narrative. That's patreon.com forward slash narrative.